the conversation that the world is now having around agriculture's contribution to climate change from an emissions perspective and opportunity to do something about that to provide not only food, but also natural solutions, whether that's sequestering carbon um, or improving biodiversity or water quality. And so agriculture is in this really unique position. And when I've been looking at that, it's just pretty obvious to me that over the coming decades, how we produce food and fiber might look really different than how it does today. And so there's an opportunity to invest in the technologies that are creating that new future. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. Good day, everybody, and welcome again to the podcast. Ag tech seems to be the topic of conversation at many a farming events and in the farming media. So on this episode, to help you make sense of the ag tech world, we have Sarah Nolet. Sarah is the co-founder and general partner of agri-tech-focused venture capital and private equity firm Tenacious Ventures, the partner and CEO of advisory firm Agthentic, and the host of her own podcast, AgTech So What. Sarah helps us blow away the myth that AgTech is just apps, IoT, and things to add to your tractor, and how it's deep and complex and having impact across the whole agricultural supply chain, and how much of the agri-tech is in that supply chain in the middle. We talk about climate-focused agri-tech, her vision of what a digitally native agriculture looks like, and her insights from World Agri-Tech 2023 conference. We discuss how farmers and agri-tech owners can get on the same page and how you as a farmer can evaluate agri-tech for your business, plus much, much more. If you want to get an understanding of the ag-tech world, then this conversation is for you. Now over to Sarah. Um, well, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. I'm finally good to see you face-to-face, well, across video at least. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, when I was, uh, I, I've wanted to talk to you for a while, and but when I was doing research for you, uh, uh, well, for you about you, um, my God, you're busy. Um, you're the co-founder and general partner of a venture capital private equity firm, Tenacious Ventures. You're a partner and CEO of an advisory firm, Agthentic. And you also have your own podcast, Ag Tech So What, which has been going a while now. Which is, I think, you say, two hundred episodes. We're getting up there. I don't know if we've hit two hundred yet, but we might. We might celebrate two hundred this year. Actually, I should probably have a look. Oh, that'll be so good. Uh, I think we're up to somewhere in the in the high twenties, and I think that's epic. For two hundred or getting close to two hundred is huge. Um, so yeah, congratulations on that. Um, I really. Um, wanted to really start with you know you you've got this very broad um you know you've got lots of things going on apart from the fact how the hell do you find the time um but the second the real question is what what inspired you to really get into this um both egg tech uh, venture space you know to really wait for the journey to where you are today, really? Yeah. Um, well, it's not exactly a straight path. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Silicon Valley in California, about 10 minutes from where Google is based. Google wasn't there when I was born, but uh, <laughs> it did emerge as I was growing up. Uh, and so nothing really to do with farming. We had a bit of a hobby farm. Um, mostly, I joke that we grow rocks and squirrels. Actually, I was on the phone with my dad this morning, and he offered to FaceTime me to show me some really nice rocks. So it's um, <laughs> it's not much of a joke, in fact. Um, and I went out to the East Coast of the US to study computer science. So again, nothing to do with ag. Worked as a systems engineer, doing kind of deep tech commercialization work. Um, but I ended up in my mid-20s uh, somewhat accidentally on a farm in South America and found myself harvesting tomatoes uh, by hand and realizing that that was not very fun and that technology could be useful to solve some of those problems. And probably more importantly, that agriculture is a massive industry with lots of potential for technology, with amazing people, like global, um, 
you know, macroeconomic factors, complexity, and I was just hooked. And so, you know, maybe it had to do with the rock farm, maybe it had to do with being uh, quite a competitive athlete and caring about food, um, or just the really cool technology and amazing people. But that hooked me on agriculture and set me off on a kind of decade now long journey um, into thinking about how climate was impacting agriculture and what role technology could play in creating more profitability and, and resilience. Um, I definitely didn't think I'd be an investor, uh, but that ended up kind of happening through really looking at where were the gaps, and especially in Australia, seeing that there was great research, there is great technology, but commercializing it has been um, not our strength. And one of the reasons for that is just lack of dedicated funding for um, this industry. And so we could point fingers only so long before we said, all right, we should be the ones to solve this problem. And so that's why we created Tenacious Ventures. Yeah. So Tenacious started up how not, well, not a huge time ago. So how long ago did you start Tenacious up? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the story is I started Agthentic pretty much when I came to Australia. So 2016. And then uh, over the years, we saw the need for for the fund. And so um, Tenacious and Agthentic are actually the same thing now. We've kind of merged the two together. So Tenacious is the investment arm. And uh, we also do some kind of research and advisory work, um, much less than we used to, but still some. And so they both sit under the Tenacious brand, which I think we launched maybe in 2019. Um, we started investing in 2020. So that part of it hasn't been too long. Okay, great. Oh, when you're hearing about rocks, I think there's a, a bunch of farmers out here who went into cold sweats when you talked about rocks, because I think a lot of us, <laughs> um, especially of my vintage, spent a lot of their youth um, on their school holidays picking rocks up and putting them in piles. Actually, one of my sons asked me that the other day, and I go, what do you do with all the rocks you pick up? And I go, well, you put them in little piles of rocks. And then the next year you go back and you rip the paddock up again and then there's more rocks and you pick them up and put them in on the same pile. <laughs> and he's going, why? I mean, it's literally <laughs> what my dad does, except the piles look a little bit like fences. And then the neighbors are like, doesn't he know that we could just run wire instead of make like stone walls? <laughs> um, but I think he just likes making them. And so, um, yeah, he, he loves it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Our, our, um, my, uh, where I grew up in Cajun up, the, um, my father, all around our house, top of a house, bottom of a house, it's all rock walls. And I think he just got, like your dad, frustrated at the fact that he was picking them all up. I better do something with all these rocks. Yeah, exactly. And they're beautiful, uh, but it's pretty time consuming and uh, would be expensive if you had to pay someone else to do it. <laughs> Yeah, and I was really envious of all my friends at boarding school who were going off on a ski holidays, and I, <laughs> and I was you were having picking. a rock pickup holiday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Hey, now when you started um, on your when you started Tenacious Ventures, um, you and your business partner had these really three strong hypotheses that you started with, which really came from your, I assume, your experience to date with um, Agthentic. And this is, can you explain? take us through those three hypotheses. So climate impact, digitally native agriculture, and sector um, specific, I can never say that word, um, high conviction, high support. Can you yeah. take us through those? And Sure. And um, even some of our language on that's evolved, but th those are really the three things that we saw. So so climate, I mean, goes all the way back to my time on the tomato uh, harvesting journey was just seeing how much agriculture is uniquely exposed to climate. Obviously, that's not news to, to mm -hmm. any of your listeners. Um, but also the conversation that the world is now having around agriculture's contribution to climate change uh, from an emissions perspective and opportunity to do something about that to provide not only food, but also natural solutions, whether that's sequestering carbon um, or improving biodiversity or water quality. And so agriculture is in this really unique position. And when I've been looking at that, it, it's just pretty um, obvious to me that over the coming decades, how we produce food and fiber might look really different than how it does today. And so there's an opportunity to invest in the technologies that are creating that new future. And that uh, is both an opportunity to do good and do well. There's sort of this impact lens that's embedded in the commercial returns, and that's really exciting um, for, for us. Is there, uh, to use a bit of a, a, a funding term, is a bit of a road a roadmap? So, I mean, it's like a, a runway sort of issue here is that, you know, there's a lot of emerging tech coming into ag and, um, and you go to a lot more conferences than I do. But when you see them, you go, well, that's going to be great in about 10 years or stuff that's going to have impact now. Is part of your role hard to identify the things that you can, you, 
you have this vision of, wow, that's going to have a huge impact in a decade as opposed to that's going to help, say, ag or supply chain today. Yeah, and that's one of the the hardest things is, you know, we see hundreds and hundreds of companies per year and the vast, vast majority of them, we say, no, they're not a fit for investment. Now, sometimes that's because we don't think anyone will use it or it's not a good idea. Sometimes it's just not a fit for our model. They might be really good companies and really good technologies, but it doesn't fit our sort of profile of investing. So um, yeah, there's there's a lot out there. And I definitely hear the point that farmers are pretty frustrated with a lot of stuff that's getting thrown at them or pitched to them that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, our view, I mean, maybe two things. One, to your point about digitally native agriculture, like we see the system changing um, and that will be more than just on-farm technology. Mm. And so as you think about, I mean, I guess to, to give an example you've used before, like f- flashback to New York City or some Sydney in you know 1900, we had horses, right? And mm-hmm. so we talk about the entrance of the car and that's the big technology that changed everything. But actually, the whole system changed around the car. We now have sidewalks and drive-throughs and parking lots and parking garages. And we can, you know, go out to meals and we park in a parking lot. And there's billboards because we drive by them. And we've got to-go cups because they need to sit in our cup holder in our car. Like, all of that whole system changed around this one technology. And so we we think the same is happening in agriculture, um, that the digital technologies will have a huge impact, but it's not just software that we're investing in. So it's robotics and biology and novel forms of fertilizer, and that won't just be on farm. So I think a lot of the frustration comes from this sense that it's just selling more farm management software to farmers. And that's Mm. definitely not what we're talking about. Um, There's a whole broader suite of ways the system's changing and hardware, biology, chemistry solutions that are going to exist all along the value chain uh, as that transformation occurs. Um, And I think that opens up the potential for a lot more useful stuff than maybe just what gets flogged at conferences. Yeah. And I I think we've all had that experience. Like you go to an event and there's another, you know, app, there's another bit of precision farming kit that you're supposed to plug into your your header or your tractor or, you know, your ear tags or something. But what you're saying is a lot deeper than that. And so you've got agriculture. We, uh, we, were, uh, we were just talking about how it's it's when you look at it at a global level or a, or a macro level, it's, it's insanely huge and incredibly complex and integrated. And so – and so as what you're saying, so as a, let's say, a grower in this case, so most of our audience are growers, and the, is that in, ag tech will impact you, but it's not always just going to be about another screen in your header. <laughs> Absolutely. And you might not even be the ones that are buying it, right? It might be something that happens at the bulk handler or like we just invested in a technology that is a... Um, coating for packaging. Mm-hmm. So it might um, coat, you know, fruit boxes or, um, you know, coat berry punnets or things like that to um, reduce costs and pro- provide more environmental sustainability. And so like, that's not what most people think of when they think of ag tech, but we think that's a really good example of the kinds of things we're going to need as we shift towards this future. So yeah, by no means is it just more more screens uh, in the header or more um, you know IoT devices that might end up in a shed more often than not. Yeah, and I think this is the um, it leads on to the I, I want to talk about this this thing called the Gartner hype cycle, which obviously you're super aware of, and it happens with pretty much everything. It ha- would have happened with cars, I'd imagine. Um, so it's this cycle that those are people who haven't come across before. Essentially, there's this what I call on the the um, the x-axis there's a, a there's a velocity or this hot this amount of change or hype and then there's a along the y-axis there's this time and you go from this basically this stage where um every you know everyone's going this is going to solve all the world's problems <laughs> um and it's all amazing right through to you get this sort of drop trough of despair sort of somewhere in the middle where everyone goes oh well it was all rubbish and then somewhere we emerge out of that and we actually get some useful stuff that we want to use and have where are we where's ag tech in that cycle do you reckon sarah 
Yeah. I mean, the um, you probably won't like my answer is that there's really no one kind of ag tech. And so mm-hmm. if you wanted to plot like farm management software versus, you know, uh, some of the um, variable rate kits versus ag robotics versus, um, you know, carbon sequestration, like versus alternative protein, like they would all probably be at really different places in the hype cycle. Um, if I had to say, though, I mean, ag tech has had a lot of interest in the past um couple years especially because agriculture and food have been more in focus with supply chain shocks and COVID. You know, everyone's been making sourdough bread and as they've been stuck at home and, <laughs> and thinking about where their food comes from. Yeah. Um, and there's been a huge flood of climate focused capital coming in and seeing agriculture as potential. So I don't know, maybe it's on the peak of the first uh, little mountain there, or maybe it's up up the top of the second, who, who knows? But I think our, our view is really that there's no one type of ag tech and some of it's, you know, down in the trough of despair and some of it's on its way back up and some of it's starting to reach to the other side. You know, autonomy would be a good example. We're seeing now robotics companies like Swarm Farm in our portfolio with, you know, real customers using the technology in paddocks and getting value out of it. Now, it's not fully, fully developed and there's not, um, you know, hundreds of them out there, but there are dozens of them out there being commercially used and and adding value. Um, And that just wasn't, we didn't have robots on farms you know, not that long ago. So some of it is is truly kind of crossing that divide and getting out there and um, making a difference. And it, sometimes it's just, is it a technology that's also got opportunity? So at the moment, labour supply in agriculture is at an all-time low. Um, you know, um, people can hardly keep their own families on farm, let alone attract labour to farm. So, so, so if we've got this sweet spot sometimes where you do have people like Swarm Farm and I assume there's others who, um, that, people who might not have looked at being an early adopters in robotics might go, okay, I I just have to, or it's worth experimenting with. Do we create those synergies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know as well as anyone, as for listeners, like there's areas of a farm business where you might be more inclined to try something new and other areas where you might not. Like there isn't just a kind of one type of grower in one area where you're either yes or no an early adopter. Um, what we're seeing though is that more technologies are getting further along. So not everything's ready for mainstream use and not everything has an ROI for every grower, but more things are progressing through. Um, you know, on one end you might have um, some of, again, the variable rate stuff. You might start to see autonomy coming through um, and more emerging is, um, you know, some of these people talk about drone-based solutions. We haven't really seen that kind of play a role here in Australia, at least um, on farm. We might see um, full non-chemical weeding solutions, again, sort of emerging, but not yet um, fully commercially uh, ready. So there's a whole spectrum. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things we you talked about earlier on this is ag tech that, you know, farmers um, may experience, but may not ever use or see um and in one of your latest podcasts you talk about like deep or you interviewed someone about deep ag tech so can you explain um what does this ag tech look like that you think is or will in the in the near future start impacting the way we okay go about or or farmers directly what is this deeper deeper ag tech that's not so visible if you're a of a farmer or a farm business. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple lenses of that. So one is um, if you take a company, for example, in our portfolio, like um, Rapid Aim, they're a CSIRO spin out that makes insect pest detection sensors. So they have um, a really cool kit that uses kind of principles of entomology and biology to detect the the type of insect um, and, you know, could even text a, a grower when there's expected pest pressures or, or when there are pest pressures. And so, um, you might give that example and say, okay, the business model is to sell the devices to farmers. And um, it might be that's part of the business model and what they're testing. And so in that case, it's pretty visible for um, for growers. But they might also work with um, a regional council or uh, a crop protection company to roll out a grid of devices. You know, insects don't particularly like to follow farm boundaries. <laughs> uh, and so no. um, from a grower's perspective, they might be using the technology, but they might not be the one that's actually buying it. And I think that kind of business model nuance is some of what we look for, that not everything is going to be driving up driveways and and selling to farmers because farmers are busy and not everything is going to be something they want to pay for. And so we look at those different kinds of business models. Um, Another example might be more, um, one of our investments is a company called Regrow. They have um, 
uh, hyperspectral technology, so software and kind of deep scientific modeling that sits behind it to detect the um, greenhouse gas emissions intensity of uh, parts of the value chain and to do modeling around things like carbon sequestration. And so their customers are folks like General Mills or Kellogg's or Cargill, who are increasingly caring about the emissions intensity of their supply chain. Um, but they might be using a technology like Regrow to um, measure and, and model that and report on it or introduce programs or incentives to, to change it. Um, but again, the farmer might not ever see that technology. So uh, there's kind of a business model element. And then, of course, there's you know, a big thing we say is you can't eat software. And so if you're going to invest yeah. in food and agriculture, you need to invest well beyond software. So um, it might be in in hardware or in um, biology or chemistry, um, but it's it's going to be well beyond just software. Yeah. And is that one of the barriers to entry? So, so if you're a if you're a startup in this space is is the fact that you need to you can't use, uh, I suppose, like a lot of the SaaS type models that have been around for a while, especially through Silicon Valley, because you need to really invest invest in hardware and measure in also to leverage that because at the end of the day we end up eating this um the byproduct so is that yeah. a bigger barrier to entry for a lot of entrants into the ag tech market yeah look i think on the investor side it's definitely created some um skepticism or concerns that are we going to have these big uber style returns in agriculture mm-hmm. um i think the converse is though there's a lot of people you know many growers included who know how to build physical things and see real value in building physical things and so it, it also opens another pool of talent um to be developing these solutions you know our some of our entrepreneurs are based in regional areas, you know, come from much more of an ag background or a scientific background than a software background. Uh, and so it, it kind of broadens the skill set um, in agriculture as well. And I think that's really powerful. And, and I see this all the time when I attend events. And I'll give you a good example is you get um, growers like in the southwest or south of WA, there's a grower called Mick Fells who ha- has a and he's a him and his wife are engineers by background. They farm, and but they've released a whole lot of innovative products, both in hardware and in software. And it's interesting you get these mesh up of skill sets. You know, trained engineers who are farming, which, which you get some interesting, um, I suppose, new new products and startups out of that sort of combination. We don't assume that every farmer's just gone to ag college or. Or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mick was on the podcast, one of my, um, I, you're not allowed to pick favorites, uh, as you know, but um, a very enjoyable episode. <laughs> um, and, and it was also, I mean, one of the things Mick wrote about and, and we talked about on the podcast was like, where's the ROI here? And for him, mm. you know, he might sell his technology to other growers, but the ROI comes from in making him a more profitable farming operation. And I think that's um, unfortunately still something that too many aspiring ag tech entrepreneurs miss is they don't work backwards from like what line item on what financial statement am I really targeting here and how am I going to move the needle for this customer? Not how cool is the technology or how much money can I raise, but like what am I really impacting and um, and how's that going to fit in the system? And so um, that's that's just super important. Yeah, it's a great. It's actually a great question. My, there's a uh, every time I see a new a new uh, piece of tech come out, and um, my brother still um, operates our family uh, farming operation down south, and and I say to him, "What do you think of X?" And he goes, oh, "It's super cool, but I'd never use it because I can't see how I make money out of it." And is this a common frustration of the? I suppose this, you know, joining smart you know, innovators and farmers together is that farmers are going, okay, I'm looking to either mitigate or manage risk or increase profitability or reduce costs. Um, and tech people are looking for a, a market or for their for their their tech, but the two just aren't joining together. Yeah. I would say, I mean, my first answer is, again, not the vast majority of stuff we invest in isn't being sold to farmers. It has mm-hmm. an impact in the agri-food supply chain. So that's that's kind of one caveat. The second would be there's a lot of stuff that people are building in any industry, whether you're building a dating app or you're building restaurant software or whatever it is, um, that just isn't very good and people don't use it. And so <laughs> that's true in ag tech as well. And, you know, yeah. we're all humans. Um, <laughs> but I think there, there are some kind of specific disconnects in – ag tech, I mean, one is like, we don't, the the tech, I, I don't like saying there's kind of this us versus them, the tech people and the growers, like we're all humans and, and there's lots of overlap between those two, as you highlighted with Mick. But 
in general, there can be a disconnect, even in language. Um, the joke I, I have seen this happen, but often tell is like, you might talk about AI and someone's thinking artificial intelligence and someone else is thinking artificial insemination. And <laughs> yeah. like you, you, you truly have language disconnects on some of this stuff. Um, and they're both busy, like farmers are running a business and they don't have a ton of time. And so like anyone, um, and so coming with, you know, poorly researched, uh, questions or, you know, just flogging your technology instead of asking for, um, you know, t to learn and being curious is never going to work. Um, and that's especially true if people are, are busy and, you know, things are far away. Um, so yeah, some of it's human nature, some of it's specific to agriculture and it's definitely frustrating. Um, what I would say though, is ag tech companies are also often frustrated with growers because, um, there's this kind of, temptation or, or, I mean, it's, it's totally normal, but to say like, we'll just wait until it's not only proven, but established, used elsewhere. And we've got 20 case studies and for a tech company, it's such a chicken and egg problem, right? You need those first 20 to get your second 20. And so, yes, you talk about early adopters, but I think there's a lot more nuance in how growers can work with technology companies and the rewards they can get. You know, maybe you come on as an early user and you negotiate that you're going to pay way less for the entire life of the product, or you're going to get equity in the business and actually participate in the upside, um, or you're going to get free support or faster support. So there's kind of a whole range of ways that that engagement can work. And it's not just buy my stuff right now. Um, and there's some I don't know, fault on both sides for maybe not getting into more of the nuance of, of how to work together. Yeah, but I, I, as soon as you're saying that, and I was saying nearly every grower I know is involved in some sort of trial. It's this naturally innovative space. Um, and some areas of the the Australia and the world are different to others. But for example, if you drive up any any road anywhere in the country, you're going to come across a crop trial or a, or a wiener trial or something. So it's like applying that same sort of mindset to 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 new innovations inside the tech space or it's there you know like you're happy to run trials for, with sheep or cattle or grain so just use that same sort of mentality maybe even around uh you know tech yeah absolutely and we we've um you know seen that work really well and i i think like anything, it's about setting expectations, you know, saying that we're going to try this on one paddock or for one part of the season or with some subset of our data and the startup or, or tech company being really clear about this is what's built, this is what's not built, and here's the value we can actually deliver. And so, yeah, absolutely. Sort of start slow, gain confidence, grow bigger, and, you know, clearly manage expectations on, on both sides. And um, it doesn't have to be just all or nothing, kind of fully go, you know, digital and start farming from my couch, you know, on the beach, like that's, you know, that's not, that's not the big jump we need to make. Yeah. I think the trouble is it's a bit like Jetsons flying cars. I think what we were sold in ag tech, um, <laughs> 10 years ago is probably, you know, and that's what, you know, you went to a lot of ag tech, um, websites in the last 10 years, you would have seen a picture of somebody touching a screen in the air and, you know, this whole, I remember John Deere's Farming of the Future um, promotional <laughs> video, you know, and it, that's what was sold as ag tech and people are going, well, where's my touch screen in the air, you know? Totally. Yeah, where are my glasses that, you know, show me all the fruit to thin or whatever, right? It just doesn't <laughs> exist yet. So I totally get the frustration. I mean, it's it's not too different to other parts of our lives. Like we've been sold flying cars for however long and like oh, I think no. we, we do sort Since of- Since the 50s, I think. Indeed, yeah, blame, you know, ag tech, but it's, it's just- part of how humans work, right? We're constantly balancing the vision of the future and the reality of the current state. Yeah, and I think if when you are in a tech company like we are, it, it, you can see where the future is. So it's very hard when you're talking about your your product to say, no, no, we're just here today, <laughs> not talk about yeah. where you can see it going. Now, you've, you've, you've written about this and talked about this before, but you're saying a lot of value is actually in the middle, in the supply chain. And the supply chain of agriculture is massive. And, you know, we've just been talking about the on-farm stuff generally. And if I go to the events, they tend to be a lot of people pitching on-farm stuff. So can you tell us about the, the these improvements or this, this technology that's starting to impact this middle or this supply chain part of agriculture, both nationally and globally? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we're in companies uh, that are upstream of the farm gate, like Jupiter Ionics, that makes uh, green ammonia from air, water, and renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So a kind of novel fertilizer solution. Um, and then definitely post farm gate, I mentioned that packaging company that we've invested in. Um, we're also in a waste management business that uh, manages organic waste um, and even doing some work on biosolids. And, uh, you know, they're managing city council waste, but also retail, like grocery waste. Um, airport waste, uh, you know, all the nasty stuff that comes out of places where humans eat things. Um, And part of the byproducts of that process is a a protein uh, product that can be used in livestock feed. So that's kind of another one further down the supply chain. Um, And yeah, some of the areas we've looked at uh, are into like more on that input space, different biologicals, um, different bioplastics, different materials. Um, obviously there's a lot of talk, um, around carbon, but more, more broad than that kind of biodiversity, water, um, where are the interventions, you know, who's going to pay what to kind of move the needle on some of those natural resources and what impact will that have on, on growers. So, um, yeah, by no means is it just, uh, you know, weather stations and, uh, and apps. It's climate and carbon. Carbon's going to be biggie, right? So I was at at uh, an event last year and one of the um, presenters talked about, you know, this this carbon reporting and accountability. And and a lot of people are seen to be kicking the um, carbon accountability down the road in the ag supply chain. So... Mm. Is there a lot of people now looking to, okay, at what where can we reduce carbon in the supply chain, and it's not all end up going to end up on farm, or it's not all going to end up at you know at a factory, you know, at a, a processor end. So, is there people working around that sort of carbon challenge? Oh, a- absolutely! It's been one of the kind of biggest ag investment areas in the last year for sure. I think it'll cool off a bit because it's it's maybe up there on that hype cycle and going to come down a steep, <laughs> steep curve a little. Mm-hmm. But um, the yeah, there, there's a bunch of ways people are thinking about it. So one is um, the like actual sequestration of carbon in soil through practices like cover cropping or, or no-till. There's people with different kinds of soil amendments or seed coatings that um, increase carbon sequestration. There's people looking at avoiding emissions. So maybe feed additives for cattle or sheep that uh, reduce the amount of methane produced um, or kind of capturing emissions like anaerobic digesters or um, or things like that. So there's kind of reducing emissions, avoiding emissions, drawing down emissions. Um, and then there's a whole set of technologies around like doing those practices, but also measuring how much is reduced or avoided, um, selling the credits to different parties or aligning it with the supply chain or thinking about other incentives for how we might drive those practice changes. Um, so that's kind of the landscape. What I would say though, is that maybe in the last year, there's been a lot of focus on especially in the U.S., but increasingly in Australia, like, why don't we just change the practices for the farmers, sequester the carbon in the soil, sell the offsets to the oil and gas companies who are going to pay tons of money, (laughs) and happy days. We've solved climate change, we've made a bunch of money, ready to go. That's a pretty tough uh, narrative when you get into it (laughs) with kind of how things are actually evolving. And we, you know, another narrative is, oh, well, consumers really care and they're going to pay more for it. And so we're going to have sort of supply chain aligned carbon programs because consumers are going to want to buy, you know, carbon neutral milk or, or wool or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Our view is that um, both of those things will, will happen. And, and it's definitely areas we've looked very deeply at. Um, more likely, I think if you want to use the power of agriculture to provide environmental solutions, you A, have to think about grower profitability. Like if we're not solving for that, like we're all gonna, we're all gonna go home or, or leave, right? We, it just doesn't work. Um, and so how might we do that? One is maybe linking it to finance. So uh, for example, we've got a portfolio company called Giora that's partnered with the National Australia Bank to enable um, green loans or sustainability linked loans for cattle producers. And so if you're having a conversation about, hey, if, if you um, consider these practices or prove the environmental credentials of what you're doing, you'll get a lower interest rate, for example, like that's a pretty different conversation and it's much more embedded in how farming actually works. Yeah, it's a bit like health insurance companies who um, yeah. give discounts if you go to the gym and um, keep your BMI under a certain level. It's a, it's a similar sort of concept, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And what I love about that exact example is, you know, 
why wouldn't your Apple Watch just already have that baked in? Like, you don't Mm -hmm. need to go enter separate data about the gym because, like, you know, your car knows that you drove there, your phone knows that you were there, your watch knows what your heart rate was, and we don't need a separate interface to enter the data for our insurance company, right? And so some of the tools and technologies we're seeing are ways to just make that easier to safely um, and securely share data that's already being captured to realize those benefits versus having like another screen to enter information. Yeah, and that's part of this. Like I'm, I'm just thinking if I was sitting there listening to this and and I was on farm, I was going, oh, God, I'm just thinking of all the paperwork. And <laughs> the um, that's just, again, opportunity is that – I always say that the uh, the innovation's in the swearing, isn't it? And so <laughs> um, that, you know, when everyone's seeing they're going, oh, my God, I haven't got time to do all this paperwork, there's obviously, you know, uh, someone thinking, though, how can I solve the paperwork problem <laughs> or make, make Absolutely. it Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, starting with the pain, right? And that's where often the um, the real value can be captured because people will pay to make pain go away. It's, it's a little bit harder mm. to sell, you know, a vitamin, right? As, oh, it's a bit better or, you know, it'd be a bit better mm. here. It's like, no, find, find that pain. Yeah. And I think this is a, um, is that a, I was going to ask you about lessons for people who are investing, whether that be in the deep part, deep tech part of ag or just in the interface front end part of it, is that, you know, um, you know, if you were looking for success, is that really the summary? You know, you have to actually go and discover that pain, regardless of how clever your tech may or may not be. Yeah. I mean, if there was one um, silver bullet piece of advice to give to investors or to, to developers, then, you know, I, I wouldn't have a job <laughs> and, uh, and we would have just solved this problem, right? So it, yeah. it's obviously far more complex than that. And, um, I would say though the I mean one of the big reasons why companies fail is they didn't find what you call kind of product market fit as in their product didn't actually find a market that was going to be, you know, enough people willing to pay for it. And so I think that's um absolutely true. There's a bunch of other reasons though like co-founders fight with each other or they yeah. couldn't raise enough yeah. money or et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's a big piece, but by no means the only one. Yeah, so it's. Um, I think there's a lot of people, we, could also, they, we, we, we make a lot of products for problems that don't exist. Indeed. Yeah, and there's hilarious ones. Like that's, that's you know, the, the back scratcher and the bread loaf <laughs> backpack and like we've got fun examples of that because we, you know, there's just, there's just so many that just uh, why the heck would you ever make this? And I don't know if you had it in the States, but in the 90s we used to have these things called innovations catalogs. They were like these, they, they were like the pre-runner to, I don't know what the equivalent is now on the internet. But there was these catalogs you got in the mail full of those products, like you know those things that people have invented. That I don't know. You have to sell them in an innovations catalog because uh, no one can actually find a home for them. Yes, my bet. The favorite was when you would go on an airplane and you used to get these magazines, and the back of it would have all these products, and you're like, "Huh, I never knew I needed like a <laughs> toe separator that also massages the ball of my feet, but maybe yeah. I do." <laughs> Yeah, I know. Oh, or just watch Shark Tank every now and then. Um, <laughs> um, advice for farmers. So farmers, um, I think, sometimes get a little bit exhausted about the whole ag tech space because um, like we're talking about the flying cars, sometimes they promise the world and and really it's a little bit harder and longer and more difficult journey than that. So, you know, in your experience, have you got any advice for farmers of how to pragmatically um, uh, you know, um, deal with ag tech or, you know, you know, try and get themselves involved or, or judge mm, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I'm obviously not a farmer and, um, can by far learn more from farmers than they can learn from me. Um, though a couple of things we have seen kind of work well is, I mean, one is just starting with your own problems, right? If you're looking in an area of the business where you don't actually feel a lot of pain, then for sure the solutions aren't going to look that compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our, one of my good friends, he talks about how he kind of mapped out the workflow across his cropping operation and looked at, you know, where is the staff spending time? Where is he spending money? You know, what are the workflows that create a bunch of pain? What are the mistakes we made last year? And actually found a kind of top three list of stuff that wasn't working well. And that's a really different basis on which to go to a conference looking for solutions than just scrolling through the booths and kind of seeing what's out there and what you like and don't. So I think the start with the problem advice maybe applies on both sides. Um, And that's something we've seen work really well. Um, The other one is, 
like we spoke a little bit about before, being a customer of already established technology might be the way that you as a farmer want to engage. And and that's awesome. So then if stuff's not ready, if you don't have other testimonials, if there hasn't been, you know, proven research around it, no worries, just wait. Like that's the deal and, and don't worry about it. That's what yeah. you said you want to do. If you are mm-hmm. willing to be on the leading edge or the bleeding edge, A, know that that's what's going to happen and you're going to stick your hand out and it might get cut, but you also might get benefits from um, having equity in those companies or getting early access or getting cheaper support and negotiate those kinds of engagements because it really isn't just a one size fits all model of, you know, I'm either a customer or I'm not. And, and good operators on the tech side, like want to work with growers in, in really different ways. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot more nuance in the model. Um, the third one we see is like, and this is obviously self-serving and definitely not investment advice, but some <laughs> of our investors are our farmers um, and, and growers. Um, and they work with us because a, we're looking globally at all of the companies that are out there and investing locally, but know that we're picking the um, the kind of ones that are going to stack up globally. And we see hundreds and hundreds of things. And so if you're getting your door knocked on with all these technologies and saying, look, I don't have time to deal with these. I don't want to deal with these. You know, having a place to send them where stuff that comes back that's relevant to you and already vetted. Um, you know, there are people like us who do that 100% of our time and aren't also trying to farm. <laughs> It's always a good question to ask yourself, though, isn't it? Would I put my money in this? And let alone and say if I was going to buy it, would I invest in it? I, you know, it's a um, totally. interesting, it's a different way to look at the same problem, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and it's an important one, too, with these early companies because you might want to be a user, but if there aren't enough other users and there aren't investors, that company's going to go out of business. And so in sometimes, like, you want something that solves your problem, but if they only solve your problem, you actually have an issue on, on the other side. And so that investment lens can, can be kind of helpful. Yeah. So if you, if you look at it and go, geez, I wish I had a share of that company, it's probably not a bad idea. So, so as long as you've done yeah. your homework, I suppose. <laughs> indeed. Um, indeed. Um, so I just want to look at a couple of last things before we go. You've actually just come back from uh, what do they call World Agritech 2023, which is in a conference, I assume. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and probably a couple of the big takeaways you got when you from that event? Yeah, so it was uh, it's probably the biggest agri-tech conference globally. I don't know by volume. I mean, obviously, some of the equipment shows and things would be way bigger, but from a kind of venture capital and startup perspective, I don't know, 2,000 people in a in a hotel in San Francisco uh, in the middle of Silicon Valley for a couple of days. So it's, it's a pretty big event. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting. On my way over, uh, the world seemed normal when I left, and then when I landed, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, sort of crisis had happened. And so the investment world was thrown into a pretty big, um, pile of uncertainty for the first three days. And that kind of cascaded into the conference and, and would definitely be one of the themes. Like the venture community is really worried about, you know, are the multiples, the markups of my companies going to hold and am I going to be able to raise more capital and are my companies going to be able to raise more capital? And, um, you know, that's a real concern and, and these things are cyclical. So, um, we'll definitely see consolidation and we'll see challenges. We'll also see successes. So I would say that was one of the big themes. Um, another one would be around this carbon space. And I think you're maybe last year would have seen at the same conference, mostly just bullish enthusiasm around carbon <laughs> and maybe some skepticism, um, but a lot of funding and a lot of excitement. And now maybe a bit more um, discernment around how these models are going to shake out and where and what you might want to invest in uh, or, or build. And so I think that space has, has matured um, quite a lot. Yeah. And as when the money gets a bit tougher, and, and I think what, what we got to appreciate is, is that behind the bit of tech that you may buy, or, you know, there's this massive other ecosystem like yourselves behind it, trying to get this tech up and building a, a runway, which they can do, you know, enough money that they can use to get the product to a point where you can consume it as a, as a grower or as a, or as a, someone in the supply chain. Um, when that money gets a little tighter, do the investments get a little bit more pointed? Does it does it does it drive these people to try and get commer- commercial a little quicker, or is there any other pressures yeah. it puts on the community? For sure, I mean, um, it, it's a really good question. I would say the focus from investors with their portfolio companies, and we're no different in the last year or so, has been like it just might not be as quick or easy to raise more capital as it was in twenty twenty one. 
early 2022. And so what are the levers then you have? Can you go slower and spend less? Can you get to profitability sooner so you don't need more money? Mm -hmm. Or can you prove out milestones faster to be able to de-risk things and raise money despite the concerns? So I think really looking at what are the levers and that's going to be really different. Some of these businesses don't have any revenue yet because they're still building the technology. And so getting to profitability is just out of the question. Some of them are um, you know, able to reduce their burn or their headcount and, and spend less um, and extend out you know, how long they, they survive. Some can get to profitability. So um, it's a little bit case by case, but definitely um, looking at what are the levers available to manage the risk that, that the business is facing in the current climate. Because that's sort of happened, we've seen it happen, happening in the very large companies. I think everybody's seen in the paper, you know, the large layoffs in the big tech companies around the world. Um, and is that about them doing the same thing? It's kind of like going to core a little bit more and a little less bleeding edge um, innovation or, or speculative yeah. work? It does depend a little bit. And I think um, there's probably some frustration around how much of the system you can game you know can you lay off people and talk about how much you took care of your employees and write these nice things and then oh by the way you release your quarterly earnings just after that and sales was up and and then wall street loves you yeah. so I, I think there's um often a few layers of that story but generally yes it has to do with rising interest rates it has to do with access to capital um, and it has to do with the strategies these companies are employing to pull the different levers they have at their disposal uh, in in current conditions just for you with um, you have this initiative for I assume um, startups and um, other people looking for investment called raising out loud can you tell us a little bit about raising out loud this initiative that you have yeah so it's um really just a series of, of kind of posts and, and conversations that we've been been writing and having around our fundraise. So we're um, raising capital for our second fund to build our second portfolio of companies. We still have a bit more investing in our first one to do with, with new companies and existing, but starting to really think about our second. Um, and one of the things I've realized about venture capital. And I mean, we started the conversation by me saying I never wanted to be an investor, which is true. <laughs> um, but, the, but this landscape is sometimes just full of like opacity. There's just black boxes and kind of weird power dynamics of, well, I'm on this side of the table with the money and you're on that side of the table. And so I get to run the conversation and tell you what I think. And now that I'm in the fortunate or unfortunate position of being on both sides of the table, sometimes being the one to make an investment decision and sometimes asking for money, you just realize how much kind of garbage there is <laughs> around both sides and and how that's not talked about. And so um, increasing access to this space, kind of demystifying some of the jargon that gets used um, and just being a bit more real about what it's like to raise money, um, I think is really powerful. And, and for me, it's been a really important part of empathizing with the journey that the people on the other side of the table are on. Because if I'm going to be thinking about telling some people no and some people yes to give them money, I sure as hell want to know what it's like to ask for money and get kicked in the teeth and, you know, told yes. And so just building that empathy and giving me the chance to reflect on some of it. Um, so yeah, it's been really powerful to, to talk about that stuff out loud. And we've gotten mostly positive feedback, maybe mm -hmm. some criticism. Um, but I guess, you know, that's the deal with doing hard things. It's, it's never anyone's, uh, everyone's cup of tea. Especially when you're pulling back the veil and there's a lot of people who like the veil, um, it's probably not a, uncomfortable for some people in the um, funding industry as well, I imagine. Indeed, yeah. And I probably have to do a bit more of that. I've been thinking about some new posts. I've taken a little bit of a break. Um, but yeah, there's um, plenty of bad behavior and plenty of just just um, behavior that's kind of been the way it has been forever for no good reason. And shedding some light on that you know, might make sense. Yeah, definitely. I actually, on just on that, before I get to the end, is I just listened to a podcast and there was an economist um, from um, one of the Ivy League um, unis in, in America and it's talking about banking collapses, et cetera, especially with um, Silicon Valley and, and, um, and uh, was it Credit Suisse and those. And he was talking about, you know, everyone overcomplicates banking in a way because he says the whole point, he, so the question from the podcast um um, host was what's the role of banks in an economy and I was why do we should we care and and he said the role of banks is really to take savings and reinvest them in businesses so we can grow an economy and he goes it only doesn't work when that doesn't happen um, 
And it was really interesting. So you as a, a funder are doing the similar. You're taking, you know, investment and putting it into investing into businesses and that what drives all businesses really. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the observations we've been doing a bit of looking at, um, you know, what, what have we done? What have we achieved? And obviously we've got the commercial performance and we measure the impact performance of the companies. Um, but one of the things we noticed recently was just how much co-investment we've attracted. So for the um, kind of millions of dollars we've put to work, we're seeing sometimes up to more than 10x co- you know, un- unlock of additional capital um, for every million dollars we put to work or for every dollar we put to work um, between 15 and 20x uh, that those companies are attracting. And so that's you know, really powerful. Like, yes, we're creating jobs because when you give someone money, they can hire people. So I think that's a little bit oversimplified. But just that co-investment amount, it's unlocking government money, it's unlocking um, other investor money. It's its just, um, yeah, a really powerful tool for um, building us toward, towards this future. And so we're really proud of that. Yeah, no, really well done. So let's finish off on um, a couple of questions. I always ask guests a couple of questions. One of the ones for you is, um, I've prepped you for this. So um the biggest myth in ag tech, um, if we haven't already covered it today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've probably covered it. The one that always gets my gears grinding is that everything's about selling software and hardware to farmers. And um, we've we've uh, hopefully proven to any listeners that that's, that's not the only thing. And um, yeah, ag tech's way more than that. Definitely. And the last one, when you're not I mean, God, you've got so many jobs. So when you're not doing the, your your roles um, in business, um, how do you like to spend your time? <laughs> uh, sleeping would be one. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I joke about that, but actually I'm a big believer in um, like eat healthy, sleep a lot, work out. Um, so like I get eight hours of sleep a night, I turn into a bit of a pumpkin at, you know, eight or 9 p.m. Um, <laughs> but I also like to, to play sports. So I've always been a big athlete, um, played sort of semi-professional soccer and um, play beach volleyball at a decently high level now. Um, so yeah, you'll find me in, in the gym or, or these days on the beach playing sport. Oh, very good. Well, Sarah, I'm glad it was a really good chat to you. Thank you for coming on. Um, and, um, yeah, and thank you for your insights for, for everyone who's listening, both whether they be growers or other people within the agri supply chain. And um, if you – we're going to put some links in the show notes, but if you want to listen to Sarah on a – I think it's a bi-monthly basis, twice a month I think. Um, is that right? Ag Tech So What? Yeah, every every other week. Yep, Ag Tech So What. Yep, there you go. Um, thanks, Sarah, and um, talk to you next time. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks so much for all the research you did. Um, really appreciate it and honoured <laughs> to get to have a chat. No worries. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Boots Off Log On. Our aim with this podcast is to give you access to the best minds in agricultural business and to help your farm business thrive. So if you have any feedback or suggestions for the podcast, including people you believe I should interview, please email bootsofflogon at agrimaster.com.au. If you like this episode, please take time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. And take the time to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at agrimaster.com.au. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.